This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I was asked to speak um, on the uh, Summer of Love and the Stars, part, partly because obviously the Summer of Love is 50 years this summer, uh, and there's, there are many activities and um, events happening around the, around the Bay Area to commemorate it. Uh, but also there was a particular aspect of the Summer of Love and the whole countercultural uh, efflorescence of the 1960s, and particularly uh, as we got into the late 1960s, there was an aspect of it that also involved a kind of re-enchantment of the cosmos and re-enchantment of nature. And that was part of the larger countercultural, psychedelic, uh, opening up to the uh, to uh, Eastern mystical and indigenous um, spiritual traditions, opening up to the the values of the ecological community. Of course, the the whole kind of Gaian consciousness was just about to uh, burst onto the scene first in a, as a as a uh, or in one form as a theory by James Lovelock very next year, 1968, and then um, with Earth Day and, and, and so forth. Let me, let me uh, quote Theodore Rozak, um, a, a scholar who many of us knew and, and loved. I'm actually re- re- recalling that he and I did a, a presentation here together uh, maybe a, a decade or 12 years ago when he was still alive. And uh, he's Ted Rozak is the the scholar who wrote the making of the counterculture in 1968, and he coined that term. And he had he was a a, a man of historical erudition, and he grasped that what was emerging in the 1960s, first of all, had certain coherencies to to it, which I'll try to unpack, but also that it was uh, associated with events and eras and countercultural movements of earlier centuries, um, romanticism being one of the, one of the key uh, ones, I'm thinking of, of course, Rousseau and Goethe, but uh, also Coleridge and Keats and Shelley and Mary Shelley and um, Madame de Stael, or, or uh, here in the U.S., of course, we had the Transcendentalists, Emerson, Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, and then another um, huge kind of countercultural awakening happening happened at the beginning of this century, at the uh, of the twentieth century, the turn of the twentieth century, in uh, Greenwich Village, for example, in in the U.S. and Bloomsbury in London, the Left Bank uh, in Paris, and so forth. 
So he was able to recognize that larger continuity, but he also saw some specific trends. And he, he was interviewed for a documentary uh, a while back that American Experience did about the Summer of Love. And he said, he was describing the aspirations of, of that movement, uh, of what, what flowered here with the flower children uh, and, and the hippies. And he said, it would be a world they are aspiring for, a world where people lived gently on the planet, not exploiting, making, not making war on nature, a simpler way of life, less urban, less consumption-oriented, much more concerned with spiritual values, sharing ideas, insights, uh, friendship, companionship, not focused primarily on material affluence and, and the GNP. Of course, a lot of what carried the, um, the 60s countercultural generally, and certainly what happened here in 1967, 68, 69, already starting in 65 and 66, but 67 was a crucial turning point, uh, was, uh, was the music. And you know, sometimes when I teach courses here, in which we try to understand something like what was going on in ancient Greece when this absolutely astonishing um, eruption of, of creativity, of um, new horizons opening up, of, of culture, of mind, of spirit, uh, in Athens in particular, but throughout much of the Greek-speaking world, how can we understand it? And we've got the written records, we have um, archaeology, but we don't have the music. And imagine trying to understand the decade of the 60s, for example, without the music. It would be like, uh, and the music in, in, in ancient, like all those great um, Greek plays that have been, that we have from Sophocles and Euripides and so forth, uh, they all had dance and music associated with them. And it was part of, a, you know, the Dionysian festival every year. And um, something like that happened here, and, except we do have the music. And in fact, Monterey Pop became the um, kind of the paradigm festival upon which Woodstock and that extraordinary sequence of, like in 1960, from the summer of 68 to the summer of 69, there were uh, 16 mass rock music festivals that, um, in which the average number of people at each one was over 100,000 people, which was unprecedented. And that, and there really had, along with the um, explosion of musical creativity that was happening in those years, um, there really hasn't been quite any other two, three year period uh, that had that same density and intensity of um, musical creativity coming uh, uh, through so many people. I mean, opening the first solo albums of Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, of Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, and Nash uh, had their first uh, album together, the Santana, Led Zeppelin, 
uh, and as well as the extraordinary sequence of those final Beatles albums, the White Album and the um, Rolling Stones, pretty much that was their their peak breakthrough period. So that's what that's what uh, started off the the summer of the Summer of Love were those concert festivals, and a key player in that, in those festivals, and in the music generally of the Bay Area was, of course, uh, Jefferson Airplane and Grace Slick in in particular, who I want to single out here. I think we can often think of the, well, there's, there's several key um, musical groups that Grateful Dead, um, Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janice, and um, Quicksilver, Messenger Service, um, Creedence Clearwater and uh, Jefferson Airplane and I think we could, you can think of a number of different songs that might especially capture the, the summer of love and, I, and probably the one that was most popularly played across the country at that point announcing it it, it was, came just like weeks before in May it was released and was very popular Scott uh, McKenzie's song um, where if you're going to San Francisco, where some flowers in your hair, written by John Phillips from the from the Mamas and the Papas, very gentle, gen- gently winning um, song and melody, and all those uh, they all uh, carry different inflections of this um, musical and cultural moment. But I want to play one song in particular here which I think um, brings a certain quality of almost a gravitas as well as a playfulness coming out at the same time that captures something important about that, that period and that decade and the experiences that many, many people were having. Typical mainstream media's attempt to, or uh, well, depiction of the of what happened in San Francisco at that time as being, you know, kind of naive adolescence with a rose-colored glasses kind of uh, naivete about life, about 
human affairs, about uh, the depths, is kind of undercut by a song like that, which really, first of all, the the, the commanding authority of her of her voice, and she's conveying a, a level of experience that <clears throat> she's she's gone through a descent, and uh, in a sense, I mean the the use of psychedelic drugs, which was um, such a an enormous part of the '60s counterculture, and was such a catalyst of it. Yes, there can be uh, many. Uh, kinds of, of psychedelic experiences. I mean, Stan Groff and I have spent about in in the twenty plus years that we've been we've been giving lectures together, maybe thirty. Um, there's probably been, if we were to run all the lectures together about psychedelic uh, experience that we've done here in this room, it would be uh, several weeks straight. And it's um, so a a kind of radical diversity of experience is intrinsic to that. But that means that that uh, diversity involves uh, not just kind of air, airy fairy or uh, touchy feely or you know all the kind of stereotype um, put down terms that can be uh, de- that can describe a a kind of lightweight, fluffy, flowery type of experience when in fact character of the larger range of psychedelic experiences brings forth that kind of kind of existential intensity, uh, depth, and complexity. Um, the 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 literary allusions, the capacity to wield metaphor and symbol as 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 uh, in such a sophisticated way. That quality of well, remember the same time this song was coming out, Bob Dylan. Uh, within about a year prior to that, was singing, and there's something happening here, Mr. Jones, uh, and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? That sense that reality is a lot more complex than what the mainstream culture intent on socializing the the countercultural generation into believing was. Um, overturned by this, by by that kind of experience, and that song really conveys it. It was one of the few songs that, <clears throat> at that moment, were able to get through the um, radio censors in terms of speaking about <clears throat> drug experience, psychedelic experience, but in such a skillful way. Well, she's just talking about a literary classic, um, so shouldn't be any problem there. Ten years ago, a hair was put on, again, as a, one of the first in a long time productions of the rock musical from the 60s, that, uh, and it was, it was put on at the Mountain Theater um, here in, in Marin, and the, one of the directors of it contacted me to come and speak with the, the cast all of whom necessarily, in order to play the cast, had to have been born quite a few years after uh, the years of the period that they were commemorating. And um, he wanted me to both convey something of the historical context, but also because I often, you know, I've I've studied the correlations of the planets uh, with 
historical phenomena and you know as like many others have tracked the the extraordinary correlation between certain planetary cycles and certain archetypal phenomena in collective culture and the song that was played so much in those years that came out of the out of hair was uh, of course the age of aquarius in where the opening lines are uh, when the when the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars. Everybody, yes, and then <laughs> um, uh, then peace will guide the planets and love will steer the stars. That's Dante. Love will steer the stars. The beatific vision. The the, the synchronicity was just a few days before that invitation had come uh, for me to give that talk to the cast. A mutual friend in New York had asked me if I could um, inscribe a copy of Cosmos and Psyche to um, Jim Rado, who was one of the two co-creators of Hair. Uh, and so since I was doing that, I thought, okay, I'll give him a call and, and get a little sense for what, what was in his and his co-authors' um, mind uh, as they were uh, creating it. And uh, we had a, a great phone conversation, uh, and he, he described how much the, um, what was happening in New York City um, so was parallel to what was happening here, and, he, and it was so much more exciting, they felt, than anything that was happening on Broadway in those years, that they just wanted to bring that kind of uh, you know, musical, cultural uh, excitement to the stage. When they wrote the, the, the lines uh, about when the moon is, I, I asked them about this, I said, where'd that come from, the moon in the seventh house, the uh, Jupiter aligns with Mars? And he said, well, um, it sounded good. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they would hear um, on the street, they weren't hippies themselves, but they, 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 would, they, would, they would hang out with them and listen to them and, and, and pick up um, this kind of pervasive, enchanted cosmology that they lived in and the astrological um, vocabulary that was being used. And that relieved me to know that they were aware of the fact of that they had just used those words for, because it was, it almost had, yeah, it had a, it was more part of the music than part of the, the actual sense of what that signified astrologically, because the moon goes into the seventh house um, every day for, for two hours. And um, it's just, you know, like just before the moon sets. Uh, and Jupiter aligns with Mars. Well, even if you're counting just the conjunction for the, as that alignment, I mean, that happens every two years. So for those two planetary or astronomical events to signal the uh, absolute changing of the eons, um, didn't quite, you know, make uh, make sense. But they were, what they were conveying was this profound sense of a birth, of a dawn, uh, of a uh, an awakening that that people were feeling on on so many levels. Now, astrologically, what was going on then that was so that you we can see empirically is. Um, such a consistent correlation is the Uranus-Pluto conjunction um, 
of, of the 1960s. It, it went from 1960 to 1972 when they were within um, 10 to 15 degrees of, of alignment of a conjunction and uh, exact in 65 and 66. And then what typically happens when we, if you look historically, every time those two planets come into either conjunction or opposition, which would be the equivalent of the, the new moon when the sun and moon are conjoined and the full moon when the sun and moon are opposite each other in the, from the point of view of the Earth. Though the, the Uranus-Pluto conjunction and opposition, kind of new moon and full moon moments of their cycle, uh, those which happen you know, uh, approximately um, once or twice a century uh, this was the only conjunction that happened in, in the 20th century. Then the opposition happened right at the turn of the 20th century. And uh, the French Revolution is another such epoch. It's from 1787 to 1798. And um, let me just mention one thing about these uh, periods in terms of the, when they, when those planets become exact, it seems as if after that, it's the period after they're exact, and for uh, several years afterwards, that the, often the most intensive expression of the archetypal energies that are associated with that planetary alignment uh, come through. And it seems to have something to do with the fact that there's so much, so many Things have been catalyzed in different areas of the world, of different fields of, of human experience and culture, and there's a kind of saturation that creates a kind of snowball effect, a kind of momentum. I mean, I think we all recognize that what we, we call the 60s very much went into the 70s, particularly the early 70s, but, uh, but in some places such as Esalen Institute and Big Sur, where I was in the 1970s, it didn't seem to really slow down that much. And, um, and places like the Bay Area, in a way, never quite stopped that carrying, embodying, enacting that, that quality of breaking through into new horizons. Uh, there was an article that in the San Francisco Chronicle about 20 years ago, it was called San Fran the Bay Area or San Francisco, the spiritual center of of the world, and it was a question mark. And it was by a Bay, Bay Area resident who had spent a lot of his life traveling, and he had been in India when he was standing at a bus stop and um, talking to the Indian uh, person next to him who asked him where he's from, he said, um, San Francisco Bay Area. And the man said, oh, that's from the spiritual center of the world. Uh, <laughs> and he thought that was unusual, especially because he was on a quest in India for <laughs> spiritual reasons. And, uh, but then a second person um, happened to say virtually the same thing within a few days. And so then he asked uh, a third person, I think it was back at the hotel, if I were to ask you where's the uh, spiritual center of the world, where, where would you say? And he said, 
San Francisco Bay Area. And I said, why would you say that? And he said, well, it moves from different, at, at different times uh, to different places. But um, at this time, uh, it's in the San Francisco, which, uh, and, and he defined the spiritual center of the world as being that place in the world which had the least resistance to new ideas, which carried the most capacity for opening up to new ways of looking at things, new ways of living, new modes of being. And uh, so then this person uh, who wrote about, I think who wrote the article, yeah, he said, he started thinking of all the things that had begun here. I mean, not, not only the flower child and the flower children and the hippies and the summer of love, but of course, uh, the initiation of of so much of, for example, the the gay liberation movement or the the UN uh, uh, here in the 1940s or the Beats, Silicon Valley and the the, the technical. Um, revolutions that have the, the personal computer and so forth. And he gave a whole list of these in a, in a pretty impressive um, way. And this particular period uh, that we're speaking of, the summer of love, and more generally the 1960s, was carrying a certain a vector of, of this efflorescence. And here I want to step back a little bit and just say something about Uranus and Pluto. So Uranus is the planet that empirically we, like there's pretty much, uh, there is universal consensus amongst um, practicing astrologers and, and astrological researchers that the planet Uranus is associated with the principle of uh, the impulse for change, for freedom, for uh, rebellion, uh, the uh, disruption, the, the breakup of existing structures, it's an it's the awakener. It's it has a, a a an unpredictable quality. It's a trickster energy. It's um, it's connected to uh, m many of the the basic qualities that we think of uh, astrologically as carried by Uranus are very much embodied in the mythic uh, figure of Prometheus, um, the rebel against the old gods who stole fire from the heavens uh, to give to human beings for their emancipation, uh, who taught humanity the arts and sciences and so forth. Uh, that quality of rebellion, freedom, um, uh, brilliant breakthrough, the symbol of the fire as both kind of cultural, artistic, intellectual ins inspiration, but also technology, human beings as Homo sapiens can, being able to control fire as, as being a, a, a defining characteristic of the species. In all these ways, that Promethean impulse um, seems to be characteristic of Uranus in personal birth charts uh, when it's prominent, like conjunct the sun or uh, rising or something like that, or in personal transits when it's crossing a person's birth chart in important ways. Those are periods when um, we see very significant changes, awakenings, risk-taking behavior, uh, impatience with uh, authority, with constraints, with uh, the status quo, uh, impulse for more uh, exciting, 
experiences that could more be expressive of one's individual originality, creativity, innovation. All those things are connected to Uranus. Now, Pluto is associated with the principle of the deep elemental powers, energies of, of the body, of the earth, of the deep psyche. It's kind of the Plutonic, Hades, Dionysian energies uh, from, the, from the depths of, of life and death and, and ceaseless transformation, destruction, regeneration, transformation, libido, sexuality, the instincts, very much connected to Freud's view of the id, uh, Schopenhauer's understanding of the of the will, or um, of uh, uh, Shakti uh, and the Kundalini serpent uh, in uh, Indian um, terms. Now you put those two together, and uh, every time they come into major alignment, you get a, a decade or so of ex a little bit more than that, typically, of, uh, of an extraordinarily intensified uh, impulse for radical change, periods of great social and political turmoil. Uh, oh, by the way, we're in one now. We're under the in the square right now, which began a year before Obama became president and will go uh, up till uh, approximately 2020. And this is the first Uranus-Pluto uh, what's called a hard aspect or, or dynamic alignment since the 1960s and early 70s. And if you've noticed any similarities um, during, I mean, whether like the Occupy movement or the political activation of youth in a way that hadn't been as active since uh, the 60s and early 70s, I think Eugene McCarthy, Robert Kennedy, and and McGovern back in 68 and 72, those were the last presidential candidates that catalyzed youth's political uh, engagement until Obama ran in 2008. And then Bernie Sanders and also uh, Hillary Clinton. Interestingly, that you have two of the most significant social movements of the 1960s, the civil rights movement and the feminist movement bring forth in the next, the very next time that those two planets come into uh, alignment um, of this dynamic character, this, the square is the 90 degrees. So they were in conjunction, then they moved to the square, and that's where we are right now in this decade. And both the fact that we had the most, um, first of all, an African-American president uh, and the two um, most popular uh, Democratic candidates, um, well, I'd say the, 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 of, of this last election, obviously, were um, Bernie Sanders, who's carrying uh, um, a, a far more progressive political philosophy than uh, any uh, equivalently popular a candidate, political candidate for the presidency for, for quite a few decades, and also um, Hillary Clinton carrying the, the, the feminist uh, and women's uh, empowerment uh, movement. So you've got, the, youth has a very strong connection to any, um, to the Uranian Promethean principle, because 
Uranus has to do with the new, with the future, with, uh, with the, and therefore the young are particularly carrying that. And Pluto tends to intensify and empower whatever it touches. So in this case, it's that impulse for um, emancipation, empowerment of uh, those who have been marginalized or suppressed, uh, and, it, uh, and rebellion against um, the status quo. Okay, so I just put on the board the two glyphs for the planet Uranus, planet Pluto. And then I put two arrows, one going from Pluto to Uranus and the other from Uranus to Pluto, in order to show that when what we, what we find in both personal transits and birth charts, but also in the world transits, such as the Uranus-Pluto conjunction of the 60s and early 70s and our current period, is uh, the mutual activation of those two archetypal principles. Just to make it clear, we're not talking about the planets in a kind of linear mechanistic way causing us to be a certain, to act in a certain way. It's not like, it's not a Newtonian billiard ball kind of uh, mechanistic causality. It's not something like gravity or electromagnetic radiation that is, that is, um, emanating out from the planet and then uh, another planet and then causing something to happen on Earth. There may be, in some kind of mysterious Whiteheadian, Rudolf Steinerian way, some in, in, intangible but very much connected to the physical universe dimension that is that can be perhaps understood in that way. But at this point, many of us feel, having thought about it for many years, uh, that the, the best uh, explanation is closer to what Jung had in mind when he talked about synchronicity, which is when uh, the, the meaningful correlation between, uh, or coincidence between two events, often one inner and the other outer, or in this case, um, macrocosm and the microcosm of the human being's world, that a correlation that is, is meaningful but is not being caused by a linear mechanistic form of um, causation. It's not being produced by that. And Plotinus, the ancient Neoplatonic philosopher, had a beautiful phrase for this. He was trying to describe how astrology worked in his mind, and he said, Everything is interconnected. Meaning is basically pervading the, the, the cosmos. And all things are interconnected. And then he said, as has been said, everything breathes together. And I think that's a very helpful um, way of understanding astrological uh, cor correlations and coincidences. It, the clock says it's 5 to 8 right now. It's not causing it to be 5 to 8. It's reflecting that fact. It's indicating it. And in the same way, the planet's movements seem to indicate a kind of... They indicate the, the current dynamics of the anima mundi, of the, of the cosmic, the soul of the world, anima mundi. And, uh, and it seems as if the universe has kind of left us with this, kind of like Hansel and Gretel having little stones to get them home um, uh, th that get us through the forest. The, the, the understanding of the planet, 
planetary movements in archetypal terms allows us a capacity to understand the deeper dynamics of both our own experience. And this work, in my own case, came out of uh, the many years of working with Stan Groff, where we were trying to understand people's variability of psychedelic experience. And they had used every form of, this is in the different psychedelic research uh, clinics that he had worked in, they had tried every form of conventional psychological tests, like the MMPI or the thematic apperception tests or the Rorschach, to try to be able to get some predictive aid in knowing how a particular individual would respond to taking 300 micrograms of LSD when they had consistently experienced that two people taking the exact same substance, the exact same number of micrograms, would have such radically different experiences, as different as, as heaven and hell, literally, well, archetypally. Uh, and the same thing with uh, the, the same person at different times. And the standard psychological tests had no predictive value. And it wasn't until um, we were both uh, working at Esalen Institute for, uh, I was there for about a decade, and he was a scholar in residence at that point. We were living in a world very much like the Haight-Ashbury in 1967 in the sense that there was an openness to the re-enchantment of the cosmos and the taking seriously of many esoteric and mystical traditions that carried a, a very different viewpoint than the disenchanted, objectified, neutralized cosmos of the uh, mainstream modern perception. And astrology, as Stan will say, and uh, I felt the same, was the last of the, I mean, we were, we were into synchronicities, of course, and of course, you know, the Tao and even, you know, reincarnation and uh, so many things made, made sense to us, but astrology seemed kind of the, the least plausible. But when we, when we learned how to calculate our charts and transits and we started doing the research because we had very good records for what kinds of psychedelic experiences people had at what time, we couldn't uh, deny the, the, uh, the evidence. And that's what opened up the larger research focus of like Cosmos and Psyche, where it goes through all the different periods of history. So on the one hand, Pluto, whatever it touches, it tends to intensify, empower, drive with overwhelming force, like a kind of volcanic energy, whatever it's touching. In this case, the Uranus-Promethean energy of the impulse for change, for freedom. Uh, uh, the, uh, so it empowers, it, empow it empowers the youth, it empowers the, uh, the rebellion, it empowers the creativity. It was like a kind of in infusion of Shakti came into the culture during those years and, and just um, in the same way that it was blasting forth the Promethean impulse to reach the, the, the stars uh, in the more literal way to, to land on the moon and the whole space program, which exactly coincided with the period of the Uranus-Pluto. Notice how much focus there is right now on, again, going into space, or go to Mars or go to the moon, the corporations now taking on uh, some of that enterprise. Well, 
it's as if that same energy that, that, that was required uh, for doing that also was coming through so many uh, individuals and groups in uh, musically and artistically, in, in, in dance, in film, in the theater. That's, on the one hand, that's the Plutonic compelling, empowering the Promethean impulse. And in the other direction, Uranus, whatever it touches, it tends to awaken, liberate in sudden, unexpected ways, uh, often with liberating or creative results, but just as easily disruptive uh, uh, um, results. Yeah, I was thinking about, you know, how uh, the Rolling Stones sing in Street Fighting Man, you know, everywhere I hear the sound of marching, charging feet, summer's here and the time, uh, the time is right for uh, palace revolution. I shout and scream, I kill the king, I rail at all his servants. So at that point, the Jagger is moving from just being poor boy playing in the rock and roll band as the individual in this moment, and he, he turns, he tunes into the collective psyche Everywhere I hear the sound of marching, charging feet, and then he and then he goes to the historical level, and he he connects to previous Uranus-Pluto periods, like the French Revolution, and the the British Revolution a century before that, the the the, the Puritan Rebellion, uh, when again they 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 killed the king, they rail at all his servants, the, up, the, uh, the, 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 the tremendous revolutionary forces that were emancipated during those Uranus-Pluto periods. But then he goes one more level directly to the archetypal, and he says, hey, and my name is called Disturbance. He's like, the, he, I, I am the very principle of disturbance. Uh, we could say today the, the, the word is disruption. The disruption that's happening to to San Francisco right now, socially and uh, domestically, uh, housing and everything, uh, in terms of the, um, the 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 tech revolution and Silicon Valley and the the tremendous transformation of um, of the city, that's that's part of the Uranus Pluto period. It's it's extremely disruptive, um, so it can, it can go both ways. Jagger was reading um, uh, Jung in those years and tuning into like how important it was to um, be able to embody the shadow and do it up on the Dionysian stage of the of the rock and roll um, uh, Dionysian festivals uh, and just as he did it there he does it with Gimme Shelter he does it with um, Midnight uh, Rambler he becomes archetypal I I. Hope you guess my name. That kind of he's he's moved, he's transcending the, the the personal and going directly to the archetypal. So I'm bringing up this bivalence here to show that Uranus also liberates the Plutonic, and that means okay. One level it can mean uh, it can come through is the Plutonic as the sexual, that part of of the id, the instinctual energies of, the, of nature and the body, it liberates it. So the sexual revolution of the 60s was very much part of the, uh, of, of the countercultural uh, uh, ethos at that point. 
But Pluto is also can just be destructive. It can be violent. It can be fiery. Uh, at the same time in 1967 that the flower children were converging, uh, about 100,000 young people uh, converged on San Francisco and Haight-Ashbury. And of course, that was a unsustainable social reality. The, the, the different groups did their very best to you know, offer food and, and medical uh, clinics and so forth, but it was, it, was, it was unsustainable. But what they were, well, I'll, I'll go back to that in a second, but at the same time that that was happening here, we, we have to remember that 1967, 120 cities burned in the United States. In Detroit, uh, um, there's a new film coming out right now about that, but right across the, the, the country, the cities were erupting. And um, there, it was, many people thought the, the United States wasn't going to survive, which is another kind of form of the feeling that many people have right now. And uh, a different type of eruption, volcanic. Uh, uh, it, the emancipation of the will to power is something that can happen under Uranus-Pluto periods. That's why you often see major impulses towards uh, populist demagoguery and dictatorships uh, and, and the pressure of, and kind of nationalist pressure to ex expand. And this brings up another dimension of the, um, yeah, so I wanted to say that, that, that Trump too rec uh, carries that side of the Uranus-Pluto energies in our time. If you think of Pluto as Hades, he's kind of like the Hades abduction of the soul of America, uh, uh, sudden swallowing of, of the, um, well, let's, let's say democratic aspirations of our, of our country. But I want to convey how at the same time, like w w a lot of what was pressuring the the Flower Children's Summer of Love was coming out of a, a decade in which there had been a tremendous amount of disillusionment. Start, I mean, the, Kennedy, the first Kennedy assassination, John Kennedy in 63, crushing effect on, on you know, anybody that's old enough to remember uh, will, will recall that. But the Vietnam War was just a huge phenomenon, and um, it 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 was br it brought home to every every family, every every young male in particular uh, in America, the that um, the perils of the current military-industrial complex, and more generally, the 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 problematic establishment, whether. We, th we think of it as corporate, military, academic. And so the, um, the call for a, uh, a rebellion against that was being lit from behind with, a, with tremendous uh, you know, propulsive energy by the fact that there were life and death stakes affecting so many of us. We can also keep in mind that at the same time that you're having this idealistic, utopian, buoyantly creative uh, cultural or, and countercultural phenomenon, 
remember that in 1968, Richard Nixon is, is elected president. Just at the very peak of the 1960s energy, Nixon wins the presidency. I mean, the many comparisons that are being made right now between Nixon's way of doing presidency and the current administration needs no elaboration right now. But that's another side of the Uranus Pluto is this kind of no holds barred eruption of the, the will to power in a kind of reptilian way, except I don't want to say anything about the reptiles that uh, who are, are uh, kindred spirits in lots of ways, but you know what I'm getting at. So I'm, I'm trying to convey the fact that eras such as these have a kind of, have a multivalent potential, and there is tremendous creativity and impulse for change that uh, is is available for the collective psyche and for each of us as individuals to work with. I want to just say uh, one more thing, uh, one more uh, mo uh, topic uh, to touch on here. The, the counterculture of the 60s was an effort to overcome that, that alienation and dissociation of the, uh, of the modern self that was, that was being encoded in and enforced by a whole uh, complex uh, social, economic, uh, as well as philosophical ideology. And um, so the, the combination of like the impulse towards community instead of just the individual, the impulse to, uh, towards the, to live in a, a more harmonious, uh, or uh, to live gently on the planet, as Ted Rozak put it, a more har harmonious uh, participatory relationship with nature. Um, and also, that radical disenchantment of the cosmos that comes with modernity in the Cartesian turn, it just seemed to be widely characteristic of the 60s counterculture, that there was an intuitive sense that not only was nature and sold, but the cosmos was um, was reenchanted as well. The entire cosmos and and the the tremendous burst of interest in astrology begins in the in in the nineteen sixties. Uh, it's Dane Rudyard had been doing uh, and others had been doing a lot of uh, work in the years leading up to that, and Jung, of course, but. Um, it's the 60s and, and early 70s that just uh, brought about this mass movement. And just as things like the mm, uh, organic uh, uh, food um, uh, movement also got catalyzed during the 60s, so also did the, did, did the astrological reenchantment of the cosmos and I believe that these both probably have something to do with that psychedelic transmission. I've been in a million conferences in my life and set, set up on um, stages in which the, the five or six other um, presenters and lecturers were all gathered together for discussions, uh, dialogue with the audience. And, and over and over again, when there'd be a question asked such as, could you uh, pinpoint what was the turning point in your own personal evolution? One after another, 
and these are not conferences that were focused uh, in, in this way, would, uh, would bring up a, uh, a sacred medicine journey, a psychedelic experience, um, an LSD trip that they took, an ayahuasca journey. Uh, when you think about the fact that the sacred medicines and plant medicines, vision plants, have been part of human um, evolution human, for countless millennia, it's not surprising that, uh, that it would have, when we reconnect to those, those, those gifts from the cosmos, um, that we might uh, be so transformed. But it seems as if part of that transformation also has to do with recognizing that the cosmos we live in is living mystery, that there are way more things going on in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our disenchanted modern philosophy. And, um, and that brings us to a place like CIS, which I think is, uh, uh, has been carrying in a courageous way a, uh, a willingness to, uh, to, within the accredited uh, higher education world, to carry the uh, impulse of transforming our worldview so that it begins to be reintegrated with the with our own interior depths and spiritual uh, qualities that have been so developed and nurtured over the over the the centuries and now there's a potential for i think a reconnection between human being and 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 cosmos and a, a kind of sacred marriage of the inner and the outer of the uh, of the of the human and and the um, co our our cosmic home and this too comes out of that very period that we're talking about CIS was 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 founded uh, in April of '68 just a few months after '67 ended and uh, obviously was uh, germinating right at that very period and shares a lot of the major uh, planetary alignments that that we've just been talking about. Okay, thank you very much for uh, listening. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu slash podcast. <laughs>